The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Everybody have a seat someplace or more spots up here. Big welcome to anybody who's come in for the first time tonight. So um, last week I started talking, as I often do in January, just reviewing the practice in a, in a kind of a general way. But it really sets us up to practice. A lot of times we hear about a particular meditation technique, like do this with the mind, with attention, and we just sort of go at it because we're good sort of scouts, you know, we do what we're told, but we don't necessarily have a sense of the bigger picture. And the Buddha was very clear, and I think it, it's impactful to use this context not just in terms of your meditation, but just generally in terms of our life. You know, what's the point? What am I doing here? What am I interested in? What desire? What is worthy of desire, you could even say? Seeing another <coughs> interesting TV program? I mean, they can be entertaining, but is it really worthy of like, that desire like this will be impactful, this will make a difference. What actually makes a difference in our lives? And so the Buddha's, uh, the way the Buddha frames things, the context he offers so that we're really evaluating who we are, how we are, how we're using this life in the context of suffering and the end of suffering. And not theoretical, but direct, immediate, like my heart, this heart, mind, body, whatever, getting bound up, this heart, mind, body, this life, releasing, putting down the load. That's actually, you know, from the Buddha's framing, that's what's relevant. And so the point of whatever we think meditation is, it's really addressing this question, how is it that much of the time, some of the time, I feel burdened, I feel weighed down by my life, by the conditions, by what's happening? And how is it that at other times, this heart, this mind seems less burdened and maybe in moments not burdened at all? And how can I orient around what I'm coming to understand about causes for getting all bound up, weighed down, entangled, and causes for the release and the letting go and the freedom from all of that psychic weight, all of that emotional, psychic, existential weight. And that's really the context. You know, we want to be able to be a human being, which means in relationship, in a world, imperfect world, our heart moved by the things our heart's moved by, 
right? We want to be a real human being in the world we actually inhabit, but not devastated or burdened by the wild, imperfect, difficult, beautiful nature of our lives in the world we live in. Like, can we even, uh, I mean, doesn't that sound appealing? <laughs> like, because otherwise, the way our mind would work is like, if only I didn't have this world, if only I wasn't me with this world that I live in and the people I live with and the conditions I have in my life, then. Well, what's the likelihood of not being you or not having the life you have? Right? It's, there's no chance for that. So when we're, we're kind of offered with these teachings from the Buddha that, yeah, that's a given. doesn't mean that circumstances don't change, but the conditions right now, this is how it is. This is the given, right? What arising right now is the given. And then now, and then now, one moment at a time. So what's really in play is how the mind, how the heart shows up for that conditional unfolding, you know, the unfolding of all of the inner and outer circumstances, how the mind relates. Is there a way to be relating that's harmonious, that's peaceful, that's skillful, that's beautiful? I mean, we definitely know, right? Without a doubt, isn't it? Don't we all know with great conviction that there's a way for me to be relating to whatever's unfolding in any moment in a way that's unskillful and the cause for stress and the cause a cause for making everything worse for everyone around me. Right? So we know we have so much evidence that I can be relating in a way that really plants seeds, causes the reverberation, maybe even endless reverberation of suffering. And we sort of, you know, it rever- those reverberations cause those around us to, you know, they're triggered. And then their trigger, their being triggered triggers us. And there's, this is happening with so many people. There's an image that's used, not just in the Buddhist tradition, but Buddhism and the yogic mystical tradition um, intersected in northern India for quite quite a long time, over a thousand years. And uh, there's this one image <coughs> referred to as Indra's net. Maybe some of you know of this. It's really a beautiful, poetic, spiritual image of a net or web <coughs> with an infinite number of intersections. And each of these intersections, there's a perfect jewel, and this jewel has an infinite number of faces or facets, you know, like a cut, beautiful mirror-like face of that jewel, but infinite number of those. And on each of those beautiful, perfect faces of the jewel, it's reflecting all the other faces of all the other jewels. 
So that that's a sign or a, a really potent image for how we're all creating the world we're experiencing together. You know, and then when somebody's that little intersection that somebody, you know, is reverberating with anger, right, then it's going to be reflected. And the question is like how are we we can't keep angry people around uh, away from us or ignorant or greedy. Just like we can't keep kind and wise people away from us. I mean, people are going to be the way they're conditioned to be. But the way we sort of receive that, well, that's, that's what matters. And there's a kind of alchemy, right? So when somebody is really angry, it can be the cause for me to reflect back anger, or it can be the cause for the heart to reflect back compassion. Right? There isn't anything that can arise, the most beautiful, the most despicable act, that, I mean, can't we conceive that this heart, its response would be something quite beautiful? Even if it was really despicable, what we were hearing or seeing or experiencing, can't we conceive that our heart could relate in that really generous, deeply understanding, oh yeah, it's like this. Given everything that's in motion, then this is what's playing out in the United States or this is what's playing out in the world. Our conditions are like this and there's this tremendous suffering, this tremendous injustice, this beautiful movement of reconciliation or healing, this act of generosity, this act of love, that we can conceive that my heart, anybody's heart really, could experience any experience that a human being could experience, but not be forced to or not be left with only one option, which is to sort of reflect something out that's unskillful or unhelpful, some you know, version of negativity, greed. The Buddha divides it into three, you know, greed, anger, and delusion. And so that's our practice. So when we sit down, you know, find our 10 minutes, our 15 minutes, our <clears throat> 60 minutes to sit, and we sit in a way that's relatively comfortable for our body on that day, and we practice sitting up, because the uprightness is sort of, not sort of, is this very real symbol for like, yeah, I'm here. I'm not afraid to be sensitive. I'm a sensitive human being. I have a feeling heart. I have a tender, sensitive body. My skin's not that thick. I feel things. I feel the pants against the skin. Right? I feel the temperature making contact. I feel that warmth or that coolness. I feel the hardness. I feel the weight. I feel the lightness. I have a mind that thinks that sort of almost endless movement of content. Right? And then I have the spinning world around me, the sights, the sounds, the activity. 
all of this the heart sensitive to, the mind, body is sensitive to. So I sit up in the middle of that. And with the intention of not suffering, like, so my, I can't help, I can't help do anything really about the exposure because what's happening inside of me and outside of me has already, in a sense, been set in motion, right? The conditions for even what I'm thinking right now and what that thought is triggering in me and what's happening around me, there's so many conditions I don't really have that much control of even what I'm thinking. But I can cultivate the intention to be relaxed and upright and kind of owning my sensitivity, not a not pathologizing sensitivity, but really owning it. I go, oh, yeah, comes with the territory of being alive, being sensitive. So I'm going to own it. I'm not going to try to distract myself. I'm not going to cultivate superficiality. I'm going to really own that sensitivity and see if it can become a superpower, so to speak, instead of like a burden. Because a lot of our economy and a lot of our activity is like avoiding being sensitive. Here we are, extremely sensitive, so I'm going to drink or I'm going to watch ceaseless TV or I'm going to fill my mind with this or do that so I don't have to feel, so I don't have to be sensitive. So when we sit down you know, and do our practice, we're just saying, maybe I don't have to run away from being sensitive. Maybe I can really own it and <clears throat> realize maybe, maybe it's not a problem being sensitive. So really think of that in terms of the posture when you sit down, like it's that stance, whatever that looks like for you, and it will be different. And some days it might mean lying down. It won't last as long, right? Because the mind starts to get dull after 10 minutes. But when the mind is really alive and on fire with, or there's a lot of emotional pain, sometimes lying down is the best posture to express that willingness to just feel what I'm feeling, to let everything move, to be unafraid, Sometimes walking in a, not trying to get anywhere, just walking back and forth or walking around the block or doing some loops of a park is the best posture for keeping the mind, like to express that deep, beautiful, powerful intention of owning sensitivity. Maybe I don't have to be afraid of being a sensitive human being. Maybe it's okay to be right in the middle alert and relaxed. And, you know, as a, one of those beautiful jewels, setting something really beautiful in motion. So whatever comes up, whatever experience shows up, could be a thought, could be emotion, could be a sound, could be any number of things, and sensation in the body, but there will be something. And even those moments when it feels like nothing's happening, that's the something that's happening. Nothing's happening. It's flat. It's subtle. It's you know, not apparent what's happening. Okay. Can this 
arising of whatever that is, that experience, inner, outer, whatever, is there a way for the mind, the heart, the body, this life to meet it? That really sets something beautiful in motion so that like in that web, in the way that we contribute to the world, we're sort of partaking in this alchemy. All we're doing is planting wholesome, beautiful, lovely seeds. Because whatever comes our way, we're learning to turn it into something beautiful. So if something horrid comes our way, the expression is to be really tender with, oh, this is horrid. It feels and looks and is like this. And I care. I care enough to be alert and relaxed. I care enough to feel what it feels like. I care enough to let my heart break a little or a lot, depending on what it is. I'm not afraid of this experience touching the sensitivity here. It can feel, you know, that it's too much, right? That's a common um, interpretation as we're living our life. This is too much. But we should always wonder if, like, actually, I don't know if it's too much. I know it feels like it's too much. I know it feels, right, because the actual feeling can be as if it's breaking my heart or as if it's crushing me or as if it's, you know, I'm so overwhelming that I don't know what to do. There's tremendous confusion, right? I mean, clearly, probably we've all had our version of oppressive moments in life, maybe during a breakup, job loss, accident, you know, where we're physically harmed or a great loss of someone we love or... (laughs) You know, surprisingly, sometimes when really good things happen, it can kind of blow our mind or cause distress. Like, what am I going to do now? I got what I wanted. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) All I know is being the one who wants this to happen, and now it's happening. Now who am I? Right? So, but our practice is like not so much that, oh, I've got a plan, so when this bad thing happens... I know what I'll do, or this other bad thing happens, or even if this good thing happens. I, it's not about having a plan. It's about knowing how to show up. Like, I'm not showing up as the one with a plan. I'm showing up as the one who knows how to feel and see and be touched or be exposed. Or you could even, you know, just to be more provocative, be vulnerable to what's arising, what's Showing up, what's having, leaving an impression. So it means that, I mean, it's a real submission. I don't have kids. I sometimes wonder, you know, a lot of my siblings have kids and and friends and so, and I'm sure those of you who (coughs) haven't had children probably wonder the same thing, like, how do they do that? Because it seems like from the outside, like such a submission. You know, I have a cat, and it's actually my, it's my spouse's cat. (laughs) That was the contract. (laughs) 
but that feels like quite a submission, you know, to like have to care for this other beast and have to arrange her life and negotiate a life with this other beast. And um, so having a kid or several children seems like, wow, that is a submission. And this is like that, except maybe even more so, where we're submitting, surrendering to what shows up. And our stance, so to speak, is, okay, you get to, you know, if we could like live our life in slow motion, it's like, oh, this experience is arising now, this thought, this emotion, this interaction with another human being, this world situation, this, that, this, whatever. This is showing up and you have rights to come in and leave an impression and do your dance of arising and passing away because there's another moment showing up, having impact, leaving an impression, and then another moment of life. And some of those moments, if we had to, we'd interpret it as boring And some are like, whoa, too much. But as a practitioner, it's like you get to show up. Experience gets to show up. I'm tired of telling life, nature, whatever, what should be showing up, right? Because it doesn't work. It's a waste of time. So instead, I'm really learning to take this, you know, position of this sensitive heart. Oh yeah, this is this is arising. It feels like this right now. This is the life. We know we're alive because of that impact, that touching. Oh yeah, it's like this. Now, a lot of what we hear and practice, you know, about, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, we hear a lot about calm and tranquility and peace and just generally in life you know like having a nice place to live that's relatively quiet and relatively safe and relatively orderly and having my health getting my body together keeping it healthy eating well so a lot of what we think about as being a healthy lifestyle is keeping some distance from the insults. Poverty is an insult. Financial insecurity can be an insult. Ill health, being sick is an insult. Being oppressed or taken advantage of in different ways can be an insult. Like we want to get away from that. And in a meditative sense, we want to get away from that because when we concentrate on some meditation object, then we get some temporary distant distance from all the things that I'm worried about, like those things I just named. But that peace, that temporary peace we get from going to a peaceful place or from getting cleaning our kitchen, right? We get a little peaceful feeling, oh, the kitchen is clean. Toilet's been scrubbed, the laundry's been done, right? Emptied the litter box. It's like, ah. Oh a little piece, a little bit like a good sit. Ah, I secluded my mind from all my worries, all my hopes and dreams, my fears, and I feel the peace of not being obsessed 
by all my worries, hopes, and dreams, and fears, right? But we always come back from vacation, from a good sit, from a clean house. Nothing lasts, right? So the real practice, as important as all of those things I was just talking about are, like to get a little break, to have a good sit, to clean the house, to get our life, our act together in different ways, as important as those things are, that relative peace, that relative orderliness, it sets us up, right? It kind of creates the conditions from a place of feeling relatively safe. Maybe I don't have to be dependent on concentration, a good set. Maybe I don't have to be dependent on having the kitchen clean. I'm not saying that I shouldn't clean the kitchen, but maybe I end up becoming a partner with someone who doesn't keep the kitchen clean, right? Or have to lose my place where I live and have to move back, right? Some relative who doesn't keep their kitchen clean. Or who knows what can happen? And why is our life screwed then? Because we don't, you know, our drawers aren't orderly or whatever it is for you that kind of, you know, for some people it's having a car that works, you know, or a big car that works, a big four-wheel drive car that works. Or other people it's like having the latest phone. Okay, as long as I have good tech, technology, I'm okay. Other people it's like their body works well. They have a bowel movement every day, I'm good. You know, I can handle the rest. So it just depends on, you know, what what we've sort of taken as our, like requirement, like I'm not safe unless I have this. If I don't have my cookie or my daily sweet, you know. <laughs> I remember Joseph Goldstein, one of the, our elders in this tradition, um, someone was teaching with him, uh, assisting one of his retreats, one of the uh, people that are, is getting trained to uh, be a Dharma teacher in our lineage here, and uh, he was assisting a retreat that Joseph Goldstein was teaching, and uh, I forget exactly how Joseph said it, but it was basically, you know, anything goes, but you don't interrupt my afternoon nap. (laughs) That's it. I need my nap in the afternoon. I can put up with pretty much anything except interrupting my nap in the afternoon. And we all have that sort of and we sort even we can know that that's not a real thing, but it is a real thing, and we know it shouldn't be a real thing, but it's a little bit like kids with their security blanket or their favorite stuffed animal. It's like it's not their most expensive toy, but it's like this line you cannot cross. You know, I'll go to sleep if that's there. If it's not there, I don't care what else you put in the deal, how you sweeten the deal, it's not going to happen. <laughs> you get that blanket, you get that stuffed animal, then maybe I'll go to sleep. <laughs> and so what we're doing in our practice is we're realizing that we can't count on anything, that everything can be taken away. And 
whether we're aware, whether we're honest and consciously acknowledging that, unconsciously the heart knows that. Unconsciously the heart knows how insecure and uncertain and vulnerable, exposed everything is. Right? I mean, we know that. We see it. I mean, in this informational age, information age, you know, we just hear about things. Somebody, a good friend, uh, who not so much contact with the last few years, but just died suddenly. No one expected it. And nobody was there for him, this person. And, uh, you know, these things just happen. It could be us. So we know it can happen. I know, I think it's a handful of people who, in my general age range, have gotten glioblastoma, this uh, aggressive brain cancer some of you know about. Surprisingly common. And so we know, like on some level, but, you know, we have our defenses, our ways of forgetting, our ways of, right? Don't we always think, oh, that's something that happens to other people? Oh, yeah, I know that happens to other people. And same thing with all the other sort of surprising things that can happen. So we want to practice that exposure. And in a little way, but in an impactful way, that's what sitting is. And it's really nice, you know, once you kind of get a sense of it, then set your, you could use something like Insight Timer. It's a free app. It's very simple. So you don't have to look at your clock. You set it, get a little nice ring at the beginning and end or however you set it up. And then, you you know, when you're setting the amount of time, 20 minutes or whatever you set it for, you're saying, come hell or high water, I'm just going to sit here. I mean, it might be that the knee hurts, that I'm fearful of really damaging my knee, so I might, you know, straighten my leg if I have to. It's not ideal. But I'm not going to break my practice. So even if you have to adjust your bodily posture, you don't have to break your practice. Oh, forget it, I moved. Might as well watch TV, (laughs) you know, or whatever. No. I, I made this commitment ahead of time for 20 minutes. I already thought it through. I'm pretty sure sitting here for 20 minutes isn't going to kill me. So I'm not moving or I'm not leaving the practice. And what is the practice? I'm owning my sensitivity as a human being. I'm sitting up as a sensitive human being, a human being that feels and sees and experiences ceaselessly Right? Experience, inner, outer experience. The eyes experience sights. The ears experience sounds. Skin experiences touches, smells and tastes. Thoughts flow. Emotions flow. We can't help this exposure. Right? We are sensitive to these, we call them in Buddhism, these six things. The flow of the mind, mental activity. Emotions are sort of here and here. And then the flow of the five physical senses, touch, sight, sound, smell, and taste. These things are in motion always. So we own that clarity, relaxation, alertness, relaxation. And it's like getting, I don't know, I've never been on a wild bronco, but that idea, you know, like something wild, but it just happens, just so happens to be my life, right? The sensitivity of my life, and I get back on. And then I lose it. I 
take an off-ramp. And before I realize it, I'm like a million, seemingly a million miles away. I'm worried about this or remembering something that happened in high school or thinking about something that might happen in a few days. And eventually the mind realizes, oh, lots of thought, feels like this, looks like this, back in the game, back on the horse. Or as Sharon Salzberg, one of our elders in this, in our Western lineage here, uses this image of like we're on a tightrope and we're always getting distracted, always falling into habits of greed, habits of aversion. We lose our balance. But like it or not, we always end up on another tightrope. It doesn't matter how many times we get distracted. We eventually, the practice reemerges and we realize, whoa, it's like this. This, this is being known. And we might immediately judge ourselves and then get lost in that thought stream. But eventually we realize, huh, I did it again. And it's like this. And to really get, learn to be grateful and forgiving in that moment when the awareness, mindful awareness returns, when the wisdom knows, oh yeah, I'm a sensitive human being. Without the words, just like, oh yeah, there is this exposure, this flow, can this be okay to be this exposed as a human being? What are we exposed to? Just our life. And the thing is, the flow of our life is going to be happening anyway. It's just the only thing that's missing is all of the stressful effort to not be here. Right? That's actually the real suffering is the wrong idea and the wrong activity that it's dangerous for me or from this sensitive heart. It's dangerous to be exposed to my life. And that's what we're checking out, is it? Our life is going to happen anyway. Why not directly experiment? Like, can it be okay to be right up in the middle, alert and relaxed, undefended? What happens? Can we get good at that? And then we take it on the road, right? So the you know, daily set, 30 minutes, if, you, if you're fortunate, an hour, if you're really fortunate. You know, and you might have to build up to that amount of time, of course. And then we take it on the road, though. So the formal is just like creating optimal conditions for being right in the middle. And there are all kinds of supports, like you can label what's going on. Oh yeah, this is being felt now. This is being known. Right? That helps. But then when we're in the wildness of our life and making breakfast and interacting and doing and thinking and we just try to punctuate as often as possible, which we're not really in control of. In a way, the formal practice and the momentum in the formal practice creates the causes for the practice to spontaneously arise in different moments during the middle of the day where we just all of a sudden realize, whoa, the mind's awake. It's like this now. Can this be okay to feel, to see, to notice things are coming and going inner experience, outer experience. 
And what really helps is this pointing out instruction from the Buddha. It's kind of his little wisdom gem. Initially, we hear it as an idea, as a concept. But what really helps us in those moments where we're spontaneously, you know, mindfulness just sort of comes back online, and we realize, oh, walking is like this. Seeing is like this. Listening is like this. And it almost initially, the first few times, it feels a little um, inappropriate to be awake in life. It's so funny. Like to be, this is a funny way in Buddhism to use these words, but to be self-aware. I often will say instead to be reflectively aware. Like to know that this is being known. So whatever you're knowing, whatever you're conscious of, but to know that you're consciously aware right now, that's a different dimension, brings a different dimension in, right? Like, can you see if you could just sustain that a little bit? Like, this is happening, of course, and most of you are awake. But to know that you're consciously awake now, and then to sustain that. See, it feels a little awkward to be consciously, to be reflectively aware that you're conscious, that you're sensitive. But this is just a bad habit, that awkwardness. And we can make it the new normal. Like, oh yeah, this is how it can be, how it in a sense should be, this reflective awareness. Like to be aware and to know there's awareness. Or to be conscious and to know that there's consciousness their sensitivity. Because that is the place of really potent and profound learning, that reflective awareness. It's hard to continue to be unskillful, to be acting out the unwholesome roots of greed and hate and distraction and disconnection and delusion, the third. It's hard for those to continue when the mind is reflectively aware that anger is like this, or that greed is like this, or denial is like this. Try it. See if you can, like when you're in denial, and then just be, just sustain that reflective awareness. Oh, this is the mind that's in denial. This is what the mind does when it's in denial. It's like this now, feels like this. And this is, in a way, the characteristic of anything that's unskillful is when illuminated with this reflective awareness, unskillful ways of relating are undermined. And you can just check this out for yourself. Skillful ways of relating, like relating with an authentic kindness or generosity or kind of a stable clarity, Wholesome ways of relating are strengthened when they're seen with mindful awareness, this reflective awareness. Like if you're just naturally, some habit of being kind and generous gets triggered and you're there in a situation, there's a kitten that's lost and you're taking care of it or some you know, little thing like that. And then all of a sudden mindfulness kicks in and you're aware that you're relating in this moment with kindness, that 
reflective awareness that there's kindness amplifies the kindness. So you can check that out too. This mindful awareness amplifies wholesome qualities. They get stronger and more pervasive and unwholesome qualities when seen with this reflective awareness begin to fall apart. Sometimes they pop like a bubble pops immediately and sometimes it's like a slow fade. And this is for us to check out. Is this true? Because that really deepens the confidence or deepens the faith in the practice when we see that I don't have to be good and I don't have to stop being bad. I just have to do one thing. I need to cultivate the habit of this reflective awareness. That supports a natural impersonal learning, or we call it insight, (coughs) and that changes everything. It transforms the mind or the heart's understanding. And it's such a relief because we can create such a weight, this idea of having to become a wise person. And it sets in motion a lot of imitation in spiritual scenes like Common Ground Meditation Center and people you know, get involved and dig into the practice. But it e- almost inevitably, everybody, myself included, you know, for a while, sometimes a long while, our practice is contaminated with this idea of becoming a good Buddhist, right? So it isn't about, see, the Buddhas, from the Buddha's understanding, there isn't really a somebody to become perfect. It's an this, me, you, we're natural processes that are unfolding. And when we bring online this reflective awareness, then this natural process that is this thing we call Mark right here, then it unfolds in a way with a deepening of understanding, a deepening of wisdom, a deepening of love, naturally. Not because somebody's trying to be good or wise or kind or whatever. It's just part of the natural process when there's that reflective awareness. In the same way, somebody without any of that reflective awareness, then generally what happens is the bad habits, that groove to be greedy, that groove to be angry, gets to get becomes deeper and deeper and become, begins to dominate that personality. You know, and we see this in older people sometimes. They practice certain grooves long enough, their mind is really ossified. It's not easy. What's that? you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? Well, I see that in my mind, you know, oh, this is my habit. Every time, oh, it doesn't matter. It's not a terrible thing that I do. Just a little greed, just a little acting out of aversion, just, but it, it becomes the habit of the mind to be averse in this way. Like we think, oh, a little road rage, a little fuming under my breath is okay. I'm not really going to pull out my gun and shoot the person or something. But it really, uh, the way it plays out, I mean, actually for me, it's like uh, if my partner, my spouse is bothering me, if I let it, my mind chew on that, right? Well, that becomes the tendency of my mind. And each time I somehow justify, allow that to happen, that groove gets deeper. 
And then it's more than just fuming under my breath. Then I actually say something stupid. And then that sets in motion something, and that sets in and then we start having problems, right? So the more we understand it, the more that confidence builds like, oh yeah, this is the one thing more than anything else that is my refuge, this reflective awareness. I can't count on anything else. This I can count on. This I, I depend on. Oh yeah, it's like this. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.